I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. Book of 1 Peter chapter 3. I was thinking this week there's this, this thing that happens a lot in the Bible um, where God says something that kind of makes the person that he says it to scratch their heads. They cannot wrap their minds around it. For example, he tells, he tells Mary she's going to give birth to the Messiah, and her response is, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Um, Jesus tells his followers he's going to be killed, but then in three days he'll rise again. And Peter, the same guy who wrote 1 Peter, what does he do? He takes him aside and rebukes him. I don't know, Jesus, that can't be right. And Jesus then rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So over and over you see that in the Bible. Many people, like Peter, did not respond well immediately to the perplexing thing that God said to them. Others, like Mary, came around pretty quickly. And I want you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews says of Noah from the Old Testament, the guy who God told to build the ark because there was going to be a massive flood. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So God warned Noah to prepare for something that was as yet unseen, that had never happened before. Yet Noah listened in reverent fear and acted in faith. So All that to say, we really should not be all that surprised when we are reading the Bible and we encounter something in God's Word that we find, at least at first, difficult to understand. That sort of makes us scratch our head. God is the one who said through the prophet Isaiah, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So when we meet something in God's Word that perplexes us, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded that His ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It's an opportunity for us to exercise faith and also to humble ourselves in reverent fear before Him. I hope that will help us as we read what can be a rather difficult passage this morning. So we're going to read in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 18. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Let's stop there and we will pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your ways are indeed higher than our ways and that Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and that when we encounter something You have said that we find difficult to understand, 
Lord, that it's a reminder to us that you are great and we are small, that you are wise and we so often lack wisdom and perspective. And so, Lord, I pray that every one of us would humble ourselves before you this morning and seek um, what your Spirit can reveal to us through your Word. Lord, that you would help us to understand, help us to apply what you've said in ways that would be honoring to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, a uh, little housekeeping before we go too far. Somewhere along the way, uh, Colby got it in his head that I save all the tough passages for him. Um, I hope that today we'll put that conspiracy theory to bed, Colby. Um, this passage is, is notoriously uh, difficult to interpret. In fact, all the way back in the 1500s, Martin Luther said of this very passage, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So uh, I find that incredibly humbling uh, as I try to wrestle with this passage. Probably the most prominent question uh, here is what Peter means when he says in verse 19 that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are those spirits? What prison are they in? And what does the story of Noah have to do with that? There are no quick, easy answers to that question or to any of the other questions raised here. And it's worth saying that there are Bible-believing, critical-thinking, Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled Christians who read this and wrestle with it and come away with slightly different understandings of what exactly Peter meant to say. So it's wise for us to approach this text with a bit of humility. At the same time, though, the overarching point of the passage is actually pretty straightforward. And it would be a real shame for us to sort of fixate on some questions that we have a hard time answering to the neglect of some truths that are plain as day right in front of our face. So, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do something a little bit different. Tonight at 6 o'clock uh, Central Time, uh, we're, we're going to have a podcast that posts at 6 o'clock tonight. And in that podcast, I'm going to go into more detail on some of the trickier parts of this passage. I'm, I'm going to try to walk through how I come to some of the conclusions that I'm going to draw this morning. And I'm also going to lay out some kind of broader principles for how we should think about passages in the Bible that we find difficult to understand. You know, what do we do when we come across, because First Peter is certainly not the only one that we come across and say, well, I don't... I don't quite know what that means. So how do we deal with passages like that? Those are all things that I'm going to, Lord willing, uh, cover in that podcast tonight at 6 o'clock. That will be on Facebook, YouTube, and, and our podcast feed. This morning, however, we're going to try not to miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. We're going to try to just walk through this passage and focus our attention on the truths that are clear, the ones that are just right in front of our face um, so that we don't miss the, the overwhelming point that Peter is making here. So I want to try to summarize everything that he says 
in three sentences. So three sentences to try to wrap our minds around the point of what Peter is saying in this passage. The first is that through his righteous suffering, Jesus overcame the penalty of sin. Through his righteous suffering, Jesus overcame the penalty of sin. That's the first truth that we want to recognize here. Now, I want you to notice the first word of verse 18, the word for. Anytime you see the word word for, it should kind of make you look back and say, okay, well, what he says here is connecting back to what he's just said. So glance back at verse 13. In verse 13, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now jump down to verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So what Peter's doing now in verses 18 through 22 is giving us the reason why what he's just said is true. The reason it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil is because, verse 18, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So his point is, the reason why you should strive, if you're going to suffer, that you would suffer for righteousness' sake and that you would suffer for doing good, you should do that because Jesus suffered for righteousness' sake, because He was the supremely good person, and yet He still suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Jesus is our example. We, We can and should endure righteousness uh, suffering for righteousness' sake because we're following in His steps. We're, we're walking in the pattern that He laid out for us. But, of course, Jesus is more than our example. If, if all you sort of take away is, well, Jesus is a really good example, then you're not going to get the point that Peter's making here because we don't suffer in the same way that He suffered. When we endure hardship for righteousness' sake, it's not because God is mad at me because of something I did. It's not that, that I am atoning for some sin or, or for someone else's sin. Uh, enduring hardship is simply part of living in a broken world. Everything in the world is broken, and we should not expect to be exempt from that. And it's also, if you're a child of God, it's evidence of God's fatherly love for us. The writer of Hebrews makes this point in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So the point that the writer of Hebrews makes is, listen, if you're a follower of Christ and you endure hardship, that's not a sign that that you have a Father in heaven who hates you or who is angry with you. That is a sign that you have a Father who loves you. Because a loving, good Father disciplines His children. Now, we all know that, that earthly parents can, can, can get disciplined wrong, right? But 
We have a Heavenly Father who never gets it wrong, who never flies off the handle, who never goes overboard or underboard. If God requires you to endure discipline, it's because He loves you. It's because He's treating you as a good father would treat one of His own children. Jesus, on the other hand, suffered for sins. He endured the shame and agony and sorrow of the cross in order to bear the penalty for our sins. I want you to notice there in verse 18 the way Peter phrases it. He suffered once for sins. And then notice that next phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. What that phrase says to us is that when, when Peter says that Jesus suffered for sins, he does not mean that he suffered for his own sins because he had no sins of his own for which he needed to suffer. Instead, he suffered for our sins, for yours and for mine, the righteous for the unrighteous. So if you are in Christ, you were once numbered among the unrighteous until Jesus took your place. Jesus, the one who was righteous, became unrighteous in the eyes of God. As Paul says, He became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. So it was this exchange of His righteousness for our unrighteousness. And it was, in fact, the righteousness of His life that made His suffering redemptive and Peter goes on to say he suffered for our sins in order that he might bring us to God. In order that he might bring us to God. So by bearing the penalty of our sin, he was removing the hostility that existed between us and God. Paul puts it in Colossians 1. He says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Too many people have this idea that, that someone who is not a believer, someone who is lost, that they're just kind of, you know, kind of neutral, just sort of, they haven't made their mind up one way or the other. And that's totally contrary to what God's word says. Paul says that. You were alienated and hostile in mind. It's not just that you were separated from God. It's not just that you were alienated from Him, but it's that you were positively against Him. And yet by His righteous suffering unto death, Jesus reconciled us to God, which is to say He, he took away God's wrath against your sin, and He also transformed your hostility to God. You were hostile to God, and God had wrath against your sin. You were under His condemnation. And Jesus, in one fell swoop, dealt with both of those things. The righteous suffered for the sins of the unrighteous in order to bring us to God, in order to reconcile us to God, to bring us into His family. That's the first truth, that through His righteous suffering, Jesus overcame the penalty of our sin. Here's the second truth. Through His righteous suffering, Jesus overcame the power of sin and death and evil. Through His righteous suffering, Jesus overcame the power of sin and death and evil. Now, you cannot have this second truth without the first truth. Because if someone is still under the penalty of sin 
then they are also still under the power of sin because the power that sin holds over an unbeliever is the power to condemn them in the eyes of God. So that if I'm not in Christ and Satan accuses me before God, he's, he's right. right. He's right to say, this person is under your just wrath. But if Jesus, by His righteous suffering, has removed that condemnation against us, then we're not under condemnation anymore. We're not under the penalty of sin anymore, and therefore, we're no longer under the power of sin to condemn us. We're not under the power of Satan to accuse us because Jesus has just neutered His argument in the court of God. So the first truth is that He overcame the penalty of sin, the condemnation of sin by bearing God's wrath against us. And the second truth is that in doing that, by bearing the penalty of sin, He also overcame the power of sin and also the power of death and evil. Look again at verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Sin no longer has the ability to separate you from God if Jesus, the righteous one, suffered in your place to bring you to God. And then he goes on to say, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So there is, a, is an indication that He has not, not only overcome the, the power of sin, but also the power of death. He was put to death in the flesh, but He was made alive in the Spirit. Now, there's more than one way you can understand uh, what Peter means there. Some people take him to mean that uh, the Holy Spirit, capital S, made Jesus alive. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the capital S Spirit. Others take Peter to mean that Jesus was uh, put to death in His earthly body and then raised from death in a new kind of body, a spiritual body that is incorruptible, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the thing. Both of those things are true and are attested elsewhere in Scripture. I don't know exactly which one of those Peter means, but I know that they're both true because they're both attested elsewhere in Scripture. The truth that I want us to focus on, though, is that through His righteous suffering unto death, Jesus won a victory over death itself. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And not only did He win a victory over sin and death, but he also overcame hell and the forces of evil. When Peter says in verse 19 that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now again, I'm not going to uh, dive into the weeds on that this morning. Listen to the podcast tonight and I'll lay out the case for why I think Peter means what I think he means. But for now, I'm simply saying here's what I take him to mean. When he says that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, I take him to mean that Jesus declared his victory to fallen angels, to, to demonic spirits. That after his death, Jesus went and proclaimed his victory to these angels who previously had rebelled against the Lord. Now, he did not preach to them in order that they might repent. He simply proclaimed His victory for our sake that we might be assured of His conquest over evil. Now, this is 
really worth meditating on for a second before we kind of plow forward. For, for, for whatever reason, um, you know, the Bible speaks in a lot of different ways about what sin has done to us and therefore what Christ has done for us. And different groups of people tend to sort of latch on to one of those descriptions to the neglect of the others. So one of the ways that, that we kind of in our tradition of Christianity tend to do this is we fixate on the guilt that sin has incurred. And that's probably partly because we live in what a lot of sociologists call a guilt-based culture. I mean, you think about what are some of the most popular shows on TV, and it's shows where someone does a crime and someone goes and finds out who did it so that they can say, this is the guilty person, and then maybe there's a courtroom scene, and then boom, they're guilty. And that, we just have that in our culture over and over and over again. And the Bible certainly speaks of, of sin as incurring guilt. It speaks of forgiveness, right, which is removal of guilt. It speaks of justification, which is a, a declaration of righteousness. It speaks of being reconciled to God. Those are all ways of describing the removal of guilt. Even in this passage, Peter speaks of Jesus, the righteous one, suffering in the place of the unrighteous in order that he might bring us to God. So all that's true, but it's just not the only way that the Bible describes sin. So in addition to being something by which we incur guilt, that we stand guilty before the Lord, sin is also something that corrupts us. It's something that distorts our very nature and holds us under its power. Sin is this strong man that enslaves us. That's the very thing Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I, I remember several years ago being on the campus at, at Auburn University and talking to this uh, undergraduate, and we were um, trying to sort of steer the gospel, steer the conversation toward the gospel. And, and uh, at some point, he, he just said to us, just in a moment of real honesty, he said, you know, I want, I want to, to do the right things. I want to be a good person, but I just can't. I keep trying to be a better person. I keep trying to do good things, and then I'll, I'll do them for a little while, and then I'll fail. <laughs> and I just opened my Bible up to John 8, 34, and I said, hey, tell me if this sounds familiar to you. Jesus tells these people, um, the truth will set you free. And they say, what are you talking about? We're, we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves, so why would we need to be free? And then Jesus' response is, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, if every person who has not yet been born again is a slave to sin, what does that tell us about the work that Jesus did in His righteous suffering? It tells us that he not only had to overcome the penalty of sin, the guilt that sin incurred, but that he also had to overcome the power of sin. Uh, in the, the words of Charles Wesley, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. So the way he breaks the power of sin is by removing the condemnation. He cancels the debt and therefore he breaks the power of it and he sets the prisoner 
free. He removes the, the fear of death's grip over us, and He eliminates Satan's ability to accuse us. And as a testimony to the finality of His work on the cross, Jesus proclaims this victory to these fallen angels, these demonic spirits in prison. And as Peter says in verse 22, He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So His work is so finished that He has sat down. He is seated at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. And everywhere in the New Testament that that phrase, authorities and powers, is used, it's always in reference to demonic beings, to, to fallen angels. Now, what's the point of calling them authorities and powers? This is important because when I say that Jesus has overcome the power of sin and death and evil, I'm talking about Him winning a victory over demonic beings. We tend to think of that purely on an individual level. So we think of, you know, uh, what do demons do? Well, maybe they, you know, quote-unquote, possess people. Um, or they, you know, maybe they just influence individuals, they tempt people, that sort of thing. The point of calling these authorities and powers is to say that they exercise dominion not primarily on an individual scale by, you know, influencing individuals to do sinful things. But they exercise influence through evil systems that sinful humans have created. That sin is not just part of an individual person's nature, but it is baked into every facet of the world. Everything is broken. And if, sin, if humans are sinners by nature, then it stands to reason that the things we create would also be corrupted by the sin that corrupts us. Everything is broken, which is why everything needs to be made new. And so through His righteous suffering, Jesus has won victory over all of it. Sin and death, and all forms of evil, not only on a personal level, but on a cosmic level. But of course, His victory only does us any good if we actually trust in Him. And that brings me to the third truth, and that is that only those who are united to Christ enjoy the benefits of His victory. Only those who are united to Christ enjoy the benefits of His victory. Once you get past Peter's statement in verse 19 that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, he says of those spirits in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, we don't have time to dive into this this, this morning. Um, if you're curious about that, talk to me afterward. But to summarize... Before the flood in Genesis 6, before you know, the reason why Noah built the ark, it seems that fallen angels had more freedom to move about on the earth and to incite evil among mankind, and that is why God imprisoned them. But Peter also draws this connection between Noah and his family on one hand and followers of Christ on the other. So... In those days, he says, eight persons. So Noah and his wife, their three sons, that makes five, and then their three wives. So eight persons were brought safely through water. So everyone inside the ark 
totally safe, right? No one outside the ark was safe. Everyone inside the ark spared from God's judgment. Everyone outside the ark not spared from God's judgment. Now notice what Peter says in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, if you cut Peter off in mid-sentence right there, it sounds like he's saying that the act of your body being dipped into water has saving power. But he clarifies, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not the act of one's body being dipped into water that automatically saves someone. It is the reality of being united to Christ that saves. So the baptism that saves is not the immersion of the body into water, but it is the identification of the believer with Christ. Just as Noah and his family were saved from God's judgment by virtue of being in the ark, the only way for us to be saved from God's judgment is by being in Christ through faith. So in other words, those eight people had to take God at His word. They had to believe that there was a judgment coming and the only way for you to be safe is to get inside this boat. And then God shut the door. In the same way, God warns us that there is another judgment coming. And the only way to be safe is if you are in Christ, which is a figurative way of saying that you have to be united to Him by faith. Baptism into water corresponds to or symbolizes that reality, but the picture is no good unless there is the reality behind it. Only those who are united to Christ enjoy the benefits of His victory over sin and death and evil. So if you're in Christ, then you have every reason to have hope and not to fear. If you're not in Christ, you have every reason not to hope but to fear. So I want to try to help us think through how we try to apply this in, in, a, in a helpful way, looking back at, at what Peter has said in the previous passage about who is there to harm you? If you're zealous for what is good, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter is trying to help us think about how do we think about people who are not in Christ. If we're in Christ, how do we think about people who are not in Christ? And here's, here's how I want to try to summarize all that, okay? Our primary posture toward those who are slaves to sin should be compassion, not hatred or fear. Our primary posture toward those who are slaves to sin should be compassion, not hatred, or fear. If you are in Christ and you are saved from the judgment to come and you have 
victory in Him by virtue of His victory over sin and death and evil. And you're looking outside in the world and you see people who are still in bondage to sin. The way you should should look to them is not with fear or hatred, but with love and compassion because they are what you once were. They are slaves to sin. It is far too easy for the church to sort of insulate itself from the world so much that we grow suspicious or even hateful or cruel toward the world. But it is helpful to remind ourselves that those who practice sin are slaves to sin. That does not negate the responsibility that individuals bear for their sin, nor does it negate the ugliness of sin. But it should help us to have compassion for people if we know that they are enslaved to their sin nature. Now, here's the thing. It seems to me that we have an easy time of this with some kinds of sinners and a more difficult time of this with other kinds of sinners. There are what Jerry Bridges called respectable sins in our eyes, things that we look at and we say, well, that's not that bad, you know. That's just how they were. That's just how they are, you know. Greedy, racist, materialistic, gossips. That's just how they are. That's just how they were raised. Whatever. Can't do anything about it. Whereas, you know, single mom who had a child out of wedlock, someone who is practicing homosexual sin, someone who is 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 you know confused about their their gender, something like that. We look at them and say, man, that's disgusting. You know, they, they, they deserve what's coming to them. That is not a Christ-like way of, of looking at people who are image bearers of God. We should not look at them with cruelty. We should not look at them with hatred or fear. We should look on them with compassion. And just as we don't have to hate them or be cruel to them, we also don't have to fear them or what they can do to us. That's one of the things that, that Peter has been saying in this passage. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I kept thinking this week about the words of, of the old hymn. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, He faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. And then this verse, Be still, my soul, your God will undertake the, to guide the future as He has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know His voice who ruled them while He dwelt below. If, if you are united to Christ, you're united to the one who the wind and the waves know his voice. So there's no need for us to fear or have our confidence be shaken because we are united to the one who has victory over all things. If you've been liberated from slavery to sin and you enjoy the freedom of being in Christ, when you look on someone who is still in bondage, your primary posture toward them should be one of compassion, not cruelty, one of love, not hatred or fear. If, however, you have never trusted in Jesus, 
and repented of your sins, then everything I've said about being slaves to sin is true of you right now. Um, there's good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ never practiced sin. So He was not a slave to sin. Instead, He suffered to bear the guilt for your sin. And in so doing, He overcame the penalty and the power of your sin. He is able to break the chains that are holding you in bondage. But you must rest your hope and your faith in Him. And you must deny yourself and follow Him. He has promised that He will receive whoever comes to Him in true faith. I love the promise of His Word. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Too many people think that they're too far gone, and Jesus says, you're not. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is a guarantee from the Lord. If you come to Him, He won't, he won't cast you out. If you believe in Him, He will not put you to shame. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment, and this is an opportunity for us to respond to God's Word. I'm, I'm sort of mindful of the fact that we have some people gathered here, and we have some people who may be listening on Facebook or YouTube or podcasts or something like that. And so wherever you are, um, however it is that you're listening to my voice right now, uh, I just want to plead with you. First, if, if you're not in Christ, come to Him. He, prom he promises that He won't cast you out. And if you are in Christ, then um, I pray that the Lord would, would remind us of what we once were, that we were once numbered among the unrighteous, we were once slaves to sin, and yet Jesus came to pave a way for us to, to be reconciled to God and to be freed from slavery. And that should change the way we think about and speak about and speak to people who are still slaves to their sins. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to impress this upon our, our hearts. Lord, we thank you for how you speak in your word. Um, Lord, that you remind us of who you are and who we are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that every single one of us today would be reminded of the grace that you have purchased for us in Christ. Lord, that by your Spirit you would remind us, Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, that you would remind us of a time when we were once in the prison of sin. And Jesus came and broke the chains. And Lord, I pray that that would soften our hearts toward the world around us. Lord, not that we would desire just to, to leave them in their chains, but that we would desire to love them where they are and to see them be freed from that prison. And Lord, if there's anyone who's listening to my voice right now, whether it's in this room or wherever they may be, who is still in that prison, Lord, I pray that right now your spirit would begin to whisper to them of the freedom that you have to offer them and that you would draw them to Jesus. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work through your word and we trust you to do that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
and amen.